Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, we are wrapping up season three with a look at some of the stick-with-it moments that it delivered for us here at Top of Mind. You know, one of our goals for every episode of the podcast is to find perspectives that will challenge us to examine our own views more closely. Often that is uncomfortable, and our natural reaction is to get defensive or even bail out. But if we can stay open and curious instead, if we stick with that discomfort, it often leads to finding new empathy or greater clarity. And as much as that's happening for you while you listen to Top of Mind, it's also happening to us behind the scenes. Every interview I do brings at least one moment where I'm thinking, no wait, hang on, that perspective makes no sense. How could somebody think that? And in that moment, I have to work hard to avoid heading straight into disagree and debate mode. Instead, I take a breath, or three, and ask one simple question. Can you tell me more about that? Everyone on our team had at least one stick-with-it moment while working on season three of Top of Mind, so I've invited a few of them to share those experiences today. I'm Madeline McKenzie. I am a senior graduating from the marketing program in the Marriott School of Business, and I've been part of the Top of Mind team for about six months. My stick-with-it moment came when working on the first episode of this season, which was about prisons and whether they really are just for punishing people or if maybe there's a greater purpose of helping people to change and rehabilitating them so they can come back out into society. Did you find yourself coming into this or developing early on a specific perspective um, or opinion about those questions? Yes. I've always seen myself as someone that believes in giving people second chances. I want people to have the opportunity to change. And that was something that really resonated with me early on. What was the stick with it moment? What, when, what was the perspective that kind of presented a challenge for you? The moment that really challenged me was when I was doing some of the research behind the scenes and preparing for Spoon Jackson's interview. And Spoon Jackson is serving a life sentence without possibility of parole for murder. And one of the things that he talks about in his book and in interviews he's done previously is how he would love to be able to go teach poetry classes in schools and teach poetry to kids if you're ever able to get out of prison. And as I was researching that, I had this moment where I asked myself, how would I feel letting my kids go to those classes? And I don't have kids, but I'm thinking about my future kids. Mm. And I realized that in theory, since I'm someone who wants to give people second chances, I wanted my answer to be yes. But it's very scary to think of, you know, sending these little kids to go to this poetry class with someone who's committed murder. Mm. And I realized that my honest answer to that question would have been, no, I I don't necessarily want to be sending my kids to classes like that. So what was that moment like for you then? It was very uncomfortable. I did not I did not like it at all because I I want to see myself as someone that would say yes, sign my kids up. I'd want to be someone who could give that person a second chance and believe in that. Um, and so my initial reaction was just kind of shut down and ignore it and pretend like I never asked that question, never thought about it, and just keep living this ideal world of like, oh, yeah, let's let's give these people second chances and just pretend like it would never have to touch me or affect me personally. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I did. I kind of left that on the back burner, stopped really thinking about it. Um, but then we did another interview with Tom Eberhardt who he was a previous prison warden in a Norwegian prison. And he shared a story in his interview that did end up in the final script and final draft of the episode. Um, But his story really impacted me as well and kind of brought the issue up again. 
He tells the story of how one day he was at the grocery store. And there was this guy, you know, packing his groceries beside me. And he just said, isn't it Tom? I said, yes, it is. Oh, oh, hi, do you remember me? And I knew I had seen him before. And he kind of whispered, oh, I, I you know, met, met you at Pastor Island uh, three years ago. Uh, and I really want to thank you, you know, for having me there and, you know, providing those skills I really needed. And then say hello to my wife and my kid. One of his previous individuals who was in custody at his prison, who'd been released and now back out in the community. And he tells about this great experience he had talking with this, this individual and how this individual had gotten married and started this amazing job, living this great life. And uh, as I ended the conversation with, now I'm in a good job and I'm making more money than you. So, uh, so I actually, you know, Norway is a small country, so I see a lot of these uh, <laughs> episodes every year. And it was a really touching story, but yet again, I found myself asking that question of, oh, how would I feel if my neighbors were all these previously incarcerated individuals? Would I be okay with that? Would I, do I want to live in a neighborhood where there's all these people who've previously been in prison? And again, in theory, I wanted to answer yes. That would be great. What a great opportunity. What a great way to give them a second chance. But my honest answer again was no. I mm. don't necessarily want to live in that type of community. And so I had to confront that same question again and really think about... How, how do I feel about these individuals who have been in prison, who've done some really horrible things? What is that? What does that look like for them to have that second chance and to be out in our communities? And, and so um, this, when this came back around to you for the mm-hmm. second time in working on this episode, Madeline, um, you made a different choice you, uh, to not just put it on the back burner. What, what, what happened instead for you? Yeah. So when it came back around, I did I did make a different choice. Rather than putting it on the back burner, I realized that this was a question that I really need to think about and understand for myself of what of what that really looks like and what kind of person I want to be and how I want to view these individuals and what it looks like to merge that belief that I still have of wanting to give people a second chance, but also this, these feelings I have of being uncertain and scared about that mm. and not sure what type of community I want to live in and if I personally really am willing to welcome these individuals as my neighbors and integrate them as part of my life. And so I had to spend a lot of time like really thinking about it and really struggling with the issue and trying to figure out, okay, what what does that look like for me and what does it mean for me? And I don't... There's no right answer. And I think the answer for each of us is all very personal and very individual. Yeah. But as I decided to stay with that question and keep thinking about it and keep wrestling with it, I ultimately realized that, yes, I have this fear and this uncertainty, but ultimately I do want to be a person that gives people second chances. And I want to believe in people's ability to change. And if that's the type of person I want to be, and if that's the type of community I want to be in, then that means putting aside that fear and welcoming these individuals as my neighbors, signing my kids up for that poetry class, and being willing to personally be giving Mm. those people a chance. The fear isn't gone. It's just having gone through that thought process and really thinking about it and deciding what kind of person I want to be has shifted my perspective of how I hope I would respond whenever I'm encountered with those types of situations. Yeah. Well, thank you for being honest about yeah. that. Madeline, it has been great working with you on Top of Mind. Thanks for sharing your story today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for letting me share it. That's Madeline McKenzie. Did episode one about the purpose of prison prompt any stick-with-it moments for you? We'd love to hear about it. You can email your story to topofmind at byu.edu. So the theme for season three of Top of Mind was finding fairness, which is a concept I've always been fairly obsessed with. I was that kid always whining that this or that thing wasn't fair. And at the time, my notion of fairness was rooted in two things, equality and retribution. I believed that every valuable resource must be distributed equally in order to be fair. 
whether it was dessert or seating space on long road trips in our family van or Christmas presents from mom and dad. Everybody had to get the same amount. And I also believed that if you broke the rules or shirked the work, you deserved less of the payoff. That was fairness. As an adult, I have shifted toward a more nuanced notion of fairness that focuses on equity and restoration, takes into account aspects of a person's behavior or situation that are beyond their control. I'm less concerned about what people deserve and more with what people need to thrive. I've only found the words to explain this recently, though, while working on this season of Top of Mind, actually, and grappling with the idea of fairness around a range of topics—criminal justice, drug laws, free speech, healthcare, asylum policies. So here's a stick-with-it experience along those same lines from another member of our team. Hi, my name is Kimberly Beck. I am a communication studies major at BYU. I'm from Pennsylvania, and I've been working at Top of Mind for almost a year now. My stick with it moment came in episode two of season three, Finding Fairness, which was the justice in healthcare episode. Um, that was one that I pitched and researched, finding guests, reaching out to guests, trying to find different angles that were nuanced to give people different perspectives. And so what was the perspective that you found particularly challenging. Yeah, so one of our guests for that episode was Deborah Selkirk, and her experience was um, having her husband die from um, basically an alcoholic liver, and she was upset that there was a six-month sobriety rule. To get a transplant. To so get a was, transplant, to yes. get a liver transplant. So she, her husband Mark, needed a transplant, yes. um, but they required him to be six months sober before they would allow him to receive a liver transplant. Yes, that is correct. And he ultimately died mm -hmm. before he could reach that six-month mark. Yes. Um, my my moment specifically was when she was talking about how um, the policy of that six-month rule killed her husband rather than his alcoholism. Mm. So what um, was it what was it that rubbed you wrong about that or that felt challenging to you about that, Kimberly? Yeah, so she talked about how her husband drank for 30 years straight and had had liver cirrhosis for three years. And when he got jaundice and they had to go to the hospital and she knew that he was dying from this, um, they he was in the hospital for 17 days before he died. And during that time, they refused to give him a liver transplant. She even offered to give him part of her liver and they wouldn't allow her to do that. Um, and their explanation was that, oh, he'll just drink and waste the liver again. Um, and and I was kind of on board with that point, only, only because, uh, you know, obviously we want all people to be able to live life to the fullest, but there's an organ shortage and there's a long wait list and you have to find a right match and people are waiting years. And so for someone who's drunk for 30 years to suddenly be shot to the top of the wait list uh, didn't seem fair to me. And I know that addiction is something that's really a cycle that's really hard to break. Um, but she she talked about how um, it wasn't the alcohol that was killing him. It was his addiction to it. And the addiction was never treated by doctors. And, and it was very clear that he had an addiction and could have, you know, sought help. And I didn't think it required a doctor to tell him, you have a drinking problem. Mm. Um, and so you're... The reaction, I guess, that you that that you felt like having in the moment was to dismiss what she was saying. Yes, yes, and and I think you know I was sympathetic to her pain of of losing her husband, and I I felt like that anger had fueled an irrational um, uh, justification. Oh, interesting. Oh, yes. Therefore, if it's not rational, it doesn't really merit our right our um you know our mm -hmm. effort to yes. try to understand yeah so i th i just thought that she you, you know was was very angry about her husband's passing and about the reason that he passed and and therefore you know was trying to find a reason um, and someone to blame um and so she came to the conclusion that it was this 6 month policy that she wanted to disband okay now as a producer of this particular episode you um you actually helped line up the interview with this guest yes. and then you were involved in listening to the full raw material and kind of thinking through like how, you know, w w what is she saying and how do we best represent what she's saying in mm -hmm. this podcast? Um, so you had to kind of stick with it a little bit. Yes. <laughs> because it was your job to like keep listening. You couldn't just turn off the yes. tape. But you decided to go even further than that. What was mm -hmm. the next, like what, what was the choice that you made instead? 
Um, I thought it was important to to hear a perspective that I didn't agree with. And that's also what I've loved during my time here at the podcast is um, I hear all the time perspectives that I don't agree with and it opens my eyes to the rationale or how somebody else can think differently. And so I think the the moment that I decided to really stick with her was when she said that um, you, are, you are saying that their life is less valuable um, by giving priority to someone else. If you do it that way, you're assigning more value to one life than another. If you choose to um, completely dismiss people who um, need liver transplants because they have been alcoholics. And that really made my ethical wheels start turning. Okay, why? In what way? Yeah, so I love stoicism and virtue ethics and and especially um, the veil of ignorance. Um, I don't know what that is. Can you describe what that, yeah. what that concept is? So the veil of ignorance is an idea by John Rawls. And basically it's the idea that if we were to take a blindfold and you were to explain a situation without knowing who was involved, how would that change your perspective? And that really struck a chord with me when she said that. And it made me think about the veil of ignorance. If if I did not know that this person was an alcoholic and needed a liver transplant, how would that change my ethical perception of them and the process? And so that really made me do a double take about how we assign value to life and what she was saying about, um, you know, we should give livers to the sickest person, not based on how responsible they are for being that sick. Mm. She even uses an example, I think, that that I found really um, enlightening where mm-hmm. she talks about like, um, if you show up to the ER with a gunshot wound, we don't ask you, well, do you have any guns in your house? If you have a gun, then, you, then we're not going to treat you because you brought this on yourself. Or mm-hmm. like if you were in a car crash and you show up to the emergency room, we're not going to withhold life-saving treatment because you were speeding, mm-hmm. right? Or because you caused the accident. And if I could share, Julie, there was one other section of the interview that really um, stuck with me and I felt like changed me for good that didn't make it into the final episode. Um, She, Deborah Selkirk, talks about um, how she felt like her husband didn't die in vain um, because she was able to become an advocate for people with alcohol use disorder. Um, And the example that she gave was um, a young woman who was struggling with addiction and uh, needed a liver transplant. She was being made to wait six months and she wasn't gonna last. Essentially, they told her she was 29 years old. And essentially, they told her family, you might as well start planning her funeral because she's going to die. And through Deborah's work, she was able to connect her to a surgeon and get her a liver transplant. And she now has a baby boy. The night they they emailed me that she got her transplant, I cried all night. It was just such, such a blessing, such, you know, it was like, not recognition, but just this feeling like, okay, you've done a good thing because you know you you saved a life. Your husband died, but that's at least one life you saved. And I've become very close with this family. I actually um, went to meet Angie and the baby last um, August, and Dr. Fung from Chicago came. So we surprised Angie, and um, she walked into her brother's house, and we were standing there. It was so amazing. Uh, and yeah, she's great. Never had another drink since. Um, she's happy, she's healthy. Um, her husband also, he didn't have a drinking problem, but their their whole family is now pretty alcohol-free. It, it, it made such a huge impression on everybody, like even her in-laws to hear, yeah, we're gonna let her die. That the whole, everybody has stopped drinking just from the trauma of what Angie went through. But she's, she's great, she's doing just great. And it was this beautiful story of this ethical kind of dilemma that I was having kind of coming through and realizing that this baby boy would never have been born if this mother hadn't been able to receive a liver transplant. It, it really, I think, drove the point home about the value that I was um, assigning to life um, and, and, and particularly um, the decisions that we make. Kimberly, thank you for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been great having you working on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was Kimberly Beck talking about a stick with it moment she had while working on the second episode called What Does Justice in Healthcare Look Like? from season three of Top of Mind. 
What perspectives in that episode challenged you? I'd love to hear about it. You can email topofmind at byu.edu. I'm Julie Rose. We're wrapping up season three of Top of Mind with a look at the stick with it moments it delivered some of our teammates. If you have listened to an episode and found yourself disagreeing with a perspective, maybe even feeling a little bit defensive about it, well, that's great news, actually, because we want everyone who listens, no matter what your opinion is on the topic, to feel a little bit challenged. Learning to stick with that discomfort, to stay open and curious to a challenging point of view is crucial to becoming a more effective advocate for the things we care about. Here's how that worked for one of our Top of Mind producers this season. Hello, my name is Cole Cummings. I'm a recently graduated uh, journalism student looking to continue with in a master's program. Uh, I was born in Chicago, but I've moved to New York, Southern California, Tokyo, Japan, and a and a lot of smaller states in the U.S. as well, like West Virginia, Iowa. And I kind of think about things differently in terms of like politics and what I think is worth talking about, I guess. I've been here at Top of Mind as a producer for almost two years now. And I had a stick with the moment when I was researching the third episode of the third season of Top of Mind, which was how can we reduce gun violence in America? What was the mindset that you had going into this episode that you would later find yourself being a little challenged about? Yeah, my mindset was really demonizing guns. I kind of wanted to paint them as the bad guy in this picture that everyone should know that guns are the problem here, how we have more guns in America than we have citizens, that we need to change policies around guns in local government. We need to buy back guns. So what was challenging for you when the episode started to take shape? So... My my first my first instance came when Daquan Stanley was describing his uh, his sort of backstory with even owning a gun in the first place. He was sort of a guest I envisioned as um, wanting wanting people to put down their guns. Who was quite literally getting in the middle of two armed aggressors with Save Our Streets in Brooklyn. But when he sh- when he shared his backstory, it kind of made me think differently about how he was kind of stuck. How he how he didn't even have a choice of whether to own a gun or not, how if he didn't have a gun, his life would be in peril constantly. The first time I owned a gun, I had to be around 13, 14 years old. I didn't use a gun until I was around 16. I've been involved in gang activity, gang life, since I was 12 years old. Uh, When I first got to Albany Projects, which is a project that is in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Seemed like every time I walked out, it was people that wanted to fight me. And at that point, I didn't have anyone to defend me. I was young. My father was an alcoholic. He popped in and out of my life, going back and forth to prison. You know, I had brothers, but they were already incarcerated or was in a different part of Brooklyn. One of my older brothers at the time that I moved to Albany Projects was on a run for a homicide. So it was just me, my mom, and my sister. So that changed my entire perspective on gun control in America, how people didn't have a choice with their relationship with guns, how how other people around the country grew up not questioning the existence of guns in their life. Or the necessity. Yeah, the necessity. and. That totally changed because there's things in my life that that I grew up with that I don't question, and that can be the same exact way with guns for some people. So this is a moment then, it sounds like, where you, Cole, were, were having to maybe acknowledge for the first time that owning a gun, like it had always seemed maybe in your mind as always the wrong choice and never necessary, and here you were confronted with a story that was proving to you that that wasn't the case. Yeah, it was it was kind of like a slap in the face at first. Um, but then quickly after, we had Aaron Dunkerley come on, a, a lawyer who talked all about safe gun storage 
and how her own father passed away from gun suicide uh, by finding his friend's um, unsecured gun just in his bedroom. And she went on to explain how vital it is to keep your gun in a secured safe. She kind of showed me the way of correct gun ownership. And And what was challenging for you about that? That I didn't think gun ownership was correct, that it couldn't be safe. And since doing this research, my own friends have approached me saying, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, purchasing a pistol to, to keep on me to defend myself if the opportunity ever arises. And now I have the know-how to say, well, you need to make sure it's locked up safely. Uh, family fire is a thing that's a rampant problem in America. And so those conversations are going differently. Like the, the result of you sort of, I guess, staying open to the, or allowing yourself to be cracked open to this other perspective um, rather than just completely shutting down or not like being open to it has has changed the conversations that you're having with people in your life about oh, guns entirely um how would you know how would you previously have responded to a friend who's like i think i'm thinking of getting a pistol i i would have said your hands work just fine well i'll be right there to beat them down with you there's no there's no need for a gun that's what i would have said initially mm. but now i'm like if you're if you're certified if you have like your license uh, your your gun ownership license and if you're locking it up safely keeping it away from any of your like family or loved ones, then that's totally fine by me to defend yourself with. But I definitely say that I'm still behind my original views of uh, buying back guns, getting them off the market, um, and changing policy within local government. But I can relate better now to the other side. They're not, it's not so right against wrong anymore for me, for sure. Cole, thank you very much for sharing that today. Of course. And thanks for all the great work you've done on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Vanessa Goodman. I'm from Springfield, Utah. I am a junior in the public relations program at BYU. I've been working for Top of Mind for about eight months now. So my stick with it moment this season came during episode four, which is the pollution episode talking about combating pollution. One of the segments that I was researching a lot on was the zero waste movement. And I'd heard a tiny bit about it in the past, but I'd never paid it much attention because pollution was really something that wasn't on my radar. I never grew up recycling or doing anything like that. It's not really big in the culture here where I'm from. Um, So I'd never really cared about it. And I thought it was kind of more of a hopeless problem. So why should I, you know, spend time thinking about it? Um, But I started researching zero waste and um, there's a lot of zero waste influencers or is what they're called Um, people who post about zero waste tips and their lifestyle and different things they do and it really interested me because it seemed like something um, that was inside of my control a lot of the other aspects of pollution were you know big scale governmental change systematic change but this was something that was inside of my control and I've always loved you know trying to better my life trying to get in better habits and make healthy choices things like that I've just just always interested me and I started to think how could this apply to my life so I started trying to find different ways I could cut back on my plastic consumption um, specifically like with reusable plastics I invested in some reusable containers for snacks or food or whatever I bought some reusable grocery bags that I would bring to the store Um, I started composting, which did not work out very well Um, yet. I'm still trying to figure that one out. But yeah, I started composting a little bit. I tried to get my roommates to recycle their trash a little bit more. Um, And just doing a lot of research for, you know, myself and my family at home to try to find ways that we could reduce our trash consumption and reduce our use of single-use plastics. But there's a but coming, I'm sensing. (laughs) So um, what happened? So yeah, I was trying all these different things, really inspired. It felt good when I was making those choices. I kind of got that like hit of like success. Mm. Um, But it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Mm. It wasn't as glamorous as it looked online, which is how most things are. (laughs) Um, But it was hard because 
you know, I'm a college student. I don't have a ton of money. I don't have a ton of time. And the things that I was seeing other people do online, they looked really cool, but I just didn't have the resources to do that. You know, I couldn't just overhaul my entire kitchen and replace all the plastic in my life. Um, And then also there was the sense of like convenience. You know, it's just nicer to buy something that comes in plastic that you can just use instantly instead of you know, scoping out the best options that are alternative, um, like healthier, greener choices. And so I kind of felt a little discouraged because I I would come to work and I would read all these amazing stories of people making real change and people um, living this lifestyle that I so admired. And then I would go home and my life was a lot messier than what I saw. And so I kind of started to disengage a little bit, not necessarily disengage from, you know, my work on the episode necessarily, but I kind of took myself out of it Mm. because I was like, that will never be me. This is just making me feel bad about myself. So I don't want to really listen to this. You know, I'll just, I'll do what I need to do, but I don't want to apply it to myself because that just feels too hard right now. Right. So, but the essence of stick with it is that you choose to like lean into that discomfort instead of continue to disengage. So what happened? Can you tell me about yeah. a moment? Yeah, so I realized pretty quickly um, after after doing that for some time, after kind of disengaging, that it wouldn't be fair for me to not listen. If, I, if I'm asking people to reconsider um, their perspective, reconsider what they think about the topic, I need to do the same thing myself. And that was around the time when we were doing all of the interviews. We were kind of starting to shape the episode into what it would turn out to be. So I decided to listen a little bit more closely. And once I kind of opened myself up to that, and once I let go of my pride is what it really comes down to and my perfectionism, um, I realized that what all of these people were saying, um, a common theme throughout all four of the guests was the fact that we don't have to be perfect. We just need to try to do our best to um, do our part. We talked to Judith Enk about extended producer responsibility. She quoted um, a quote that I had actually read in my research before, um, but I'd kind of brushed to the side. But when she said it, it really got new meaning for me um, by a woman named Anne-Marie Bonneau, who is a zero waste, one of those zero waste influencers who I admire so much. Anne-Marie says, we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing zero waste imperfectly. So do the best you can. Don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. We don't have a lot of choice when we enter a supermarket. But if overpackaging and too much plastic is a concern, take political action in your own community. You can work on local plastic bag bans. You can work at the state level on state laws. So that really stood out to me because the fact that I care so much and the fact that I am trying as much as I can makes a difference and really will make that difference in the end, especially as I continue to make these choices and continue to hopefully inspire those around me to think twice about it. Um, That's when real change will happen and that's when we'll really see a difference coming into play. What difference has this made for you then, Um, just personally, the, the having having stuck with it long enough to sort of recognize that it's okay to be imperfect as long as you're trying. I definitely feel like my perfectionism touches every aspect of my life, and it has since I was a little kid. Um, But this has shown me that I can use my passion um, and I can use my drive um, to learn new things to make change. And it has inspired me to realize that I don't have to have all the answers for everything. I don't have to have the perfect solution. Um, Peace comes knowing that I'm trying my best and that as long as I'm trying my best and doing everything that I can, um, that's enough. And that's a really comforting thought because there's so much that's outside of my control. Well, you might be able to skip a few sessions with a therapist. (laughs) I know, maybe. (laughs) Having been through that experience. (laughs) Vanessa, thank you so much for sharing your insights and for working with Top of Mind. It's great having you on the team. Of course, it's my pleasure. That was Vanessa Goodman talking about episode four called Who is Responsible for Combating Pollution? from the latest season of Top of Mind. And before her, we heard from Cole Cummings talking about his stick with it moment while working on episode three, How Can We Reduce Gun Violence in America? 
This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've got one more stick with it story to share with you today from the latest season of Top of Mind. And I hope hearing how we have been challenged by perspectives while creating these episodes has prompted you to reflect on similar experiences you may have had while listening. Send an email to topofmind at byu.edu and let us know. My name is James Hoops. I help produce Top of Mind, and I've been working here for two years. Yes, you have. Welcome, James. Thanks. We spend an awful lot of time poring over interviews and prep materials and scripts. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about some of your reflections on the season. What What episode do you want to focus on today? My stick with it moment came in episode nine, free expression. Right. So this is the episode about free speech, a constitutional right that we care very much about in America, but also acknowledging that words can cause harm Mm -hmm. and can cause offense. And where do we draw that line? Where do we want to draw that line? as a community. Yeah, and I've actually been thinking about free speech a lot in the last year or so as I look around. I don't know, it's it's become more prominent in the news, especially when you look at college campuses and things like that. And I think a lot of those things I've been thinking about are also reasons why we wanted to tackle it in our podcast. But um, it's been tricky for me because I feel like a lot of times we... People in general, Americans, we like to value the free speech over the harm a little bit. And so coming in, my bias maybe was that I I am really cautious and I'm really careful about the words that I use and I don't want to hurt other people with them. So I feel like when you when you talk about balancing, you know, protecting people, having these spaces where people feel comfortable and also having a space where people feel free to express ideas. You can value one side or the other. And coming into this episode, I fell more on the side of I want to make sure that people feel comfortable, especially in a personal sense when I'm having conversations, even really hard conversations and important conversations, I tend to fall more on the side of I want to make sure that people feel respected and comfortable, even if that means maybe expressing myself differently or even curbing some of the ideas I'm presenting to make sure that people understand I'm coming forward in good faith. So a lot of times discussions about free speech can be tricky for me or complicated and make me squirm a little bit because a lot of people fall on the opposite side of that equation. And a lot of our guests in this episode did where they maybe value the importance of that free speech, in my view, a little bit more than protecting people from harm. Okay. Okay. So what was a moment that um, was challenging then for you? Right. So for me, it came in the second section, Daniel Weatherby's section. She's a professor and she's sort of an expert on free speech and the First Amendment. And she started off with um, talking about this idea of the free marketplace of ideas. Ultimately, the First Amendment was designed to create a marketplace of ideas. You know, we live in a representative democracy that's premised on the exchange of ideas and robust debate to get at the best truth. You know, the the justices have said the best test of truth is a robust exchange of ideas. So that definitely shapes my thinking about how to curate a space in my teaching that enables that exchange of ideas, because I think what can come out of it is truth and enlightenment. In my mind, When you talk about a marketplace, you sort of assume that people have these choices, right? That people come in, choose to listen to some things, choose to not listen to other things, right? Um, Just like when they go into a grocery store, they can choose to buy some products and not other products. But when I sort of look back on American history, I feel like there's a lot of ideas and talking points that don't get phased out like they would in a marketplace. Like an inferior product would fall by the wayside and leave. But in terms of things like maybe racism or any form of bigotry like that, I still see those things. They haven't been rooted out by this quote unquote free marketplace of ideas. And so I sort of I don't know, it was challenging for me to hear her talk about how important this free marketplace of ideas was to America when I look back and I see, oh, I don't know if this free marketplace is working for us. And I think she makes an important clarification in that episode about how um, the First Amendment is about government restricting free speech and also that no constitutional um, amendment, even the First Amendment, uh, is sort of 
free range. They all have sort of stipulations and are mm-hmm. curbed by the government in some ways. And so it's interesting to me to hear us talk so much about balancing harm and free speech, but we don't have many discussions about, you know, libel as a curve, right? We think that that's something that the government should be able to step in and approve. But when it comes to hurting people, we're less interested in, or we're a little bit more resistant to the idea of curbing free speech, which is a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around sometimes as okay. someone who leans towards wanting to protect others. Okay, so, so so um, so you uh, f- found her perspective challenging, mm-hmm. um, and what was your inclination in that um, it, when encountering this perspective? Right. So my initial reaction was sort of to distrust her a little bit, to push her away and keep her at more of a distance, especially um, when we dived into the conversation about the students she teaches on campus and she started talking about how she gets worried about her students not being resilient to speech that's maybe contrary to their beliefs. I find that the generations of students that I've seen from my very first year teaching, which was 10 years ago, have become a little bit less resilient, less able to withstand offense in in speech. But I also believe institutions of higher education have a responsibility to train you know, the future leaders of society to engage in civil discourse. And part of that is learning speech tolerance. I don't know, that made me feel a little bit uneasy and I wanted to push away, especially since I'm a college student, right? I'm in classes. I can see myself in those same shoes, um, maybe protesting a speaker who I don't think should come to campus and have a platform. Like I can see myself in a situation like that. And my inclination was maybe to push back, push away and disengage a little bit. So what happened when you chose instead to lean into this perspective that made you squirm, (laughs) that made you feel a little threatened personally? Right. Yeah, I think it was really rewarding because I actually came to more clarity after having challenged myself and probed myself a little bit with Daniel Weatherby's perspective um, in coming to this conclusion that um, free speech is important, right? That we do need to engage with ideas that contradict our own, right? Like I did in this interview, but... Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is a time and a place for us to draw lines in our personal lives, right? I don't think the government should be stepping in to curb speech, but I do think that um, free speech doesn't mean that we have to engage or platform people, and it doesn't mean that um, we have to have debates that aren't in good faith. So for me, coming away from this, I learned about myself that um, I can draw a line in conversations that I will and won't participate in. And when I realize that people aren't acting in good faith, I don't have to continue that. Even though maybe they have a right to say what they want to, I don't. My free speech is that I don't have to maybe engage. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was so much that I found fascinating about that conversation too uh, in that episode, James. I appreciate you highlighting this one because um, it, it, I, I, I too have sort of wondered about like, well, does it have to be say whatever you want and to heck with anybody's feelings, you know, or or how it, how it might harm people because that's not the kind of, I mean, I've, I've behaved like that occasionally in my life. Like, I'm going to say this thing because it's my right, you know, and then I, and it doesn't feel good to know mm-hmm. that, that me expressing myself is harming someone else. Like, was it really worth that? So kind of figuring out that balance as well, I think one of the things I really appreciated from Danielle Weatherby was her um, was her concept about speech narcissism. Speech narcissism reflects this kind of egotism or fixation with one's own worldview and life experiences that makes one essentially unable to listen to opposing viewpoints. It manifests a kind of a lack of empathy and understanding of differences. There's a lack of self-awareness in that kind of my way or the highway approach to speech. And I think it is very harmful. Um, Instead of looking for common ground, which I believe in so much that we all have, or remembering that a single idea does not necessarily define the character of a whole person, a speech narcissist will immediately characterize the speaker as all bad. And that's what causes the ultimate harm that shuts down discourse, that silences people, that chills speech. And if we can't talk to one another, if we can't communicate, then there's no forward progress. That for me was like the most 
insightful because that's something I can take into my life and into our communities and into these conversations. And so when you're saying like, I don't have to engage with with a bad actor or someone in bad faith, to me, I, I, I interpret that as a speech narcissist. Like I don't see a huge value in having a conversation with somebody who thinks that their perspective is the only right perspective and judges me as being less, you know, intelligent or less worthy of expression because my opinion is different. Um, that I think is where, like, we're all prone to that. And I think that's part of what makes makes it so difficult to, um, in this polarized world that we, we seem to live in, where we're all kind of marching around feeling like we have the best perspective and we're not interested in hearing any perspective that's different than that. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I will say, I do think there are some some speeches that the vast majority of us agree, like, we don't need to tolerate or sort of give any space to, right? Like overt racism or overt anti-Semitism, things like that. There are speeches that we just don't tolerate and don't engage with. But Mm -hmm. I do agree with you that speech narcissism sort of siloing ourselves in these echo chambers isn't positive. I actually, I used to be a pretty raging speech narcissist, you could say. In high school, um, me and my parents would bicker all of the time about politics. And I came to those conversations wanting to own them, right? Like wanting to sort of get my points across and like use my pithy one-liners that I'd found on Instagram or Twitter or whatever Mm -hmm. um, just sort of like prove my parents wrong. And all of my younger siblings, I'm the oldest of five, so all of my younger siblings totally hated it. Like road trips, Sunday walks, me and my parents would always be arguing about some news headline and neither of us were coming, especially me though, were coming to this conversation to engage with ideas or to understand more deeply. I was the bad faith actor that I'm so wary of these days. But um, fast forward to now, me and my parents still have those political conversations, but both sides have moderated a little bit. And when we come to the table, we never leave with different opinions and we never convince each other, but our discussions are more fruitful now. So I do think, I don't know. Fruitful in what way? Fruitful in that um, we, I think it helps strengthen our relationship to talk through issues that we disagree with, um, maybe even issues that are so core and central to us, but that um, we can come away and still have a strong relationship, I think is a pretty strong testament. But um, I do think if my parents or if I were coming into the conversation in the way that I did in high school, um, maybe that'd be a place where I could draw a line or where they could draw a line and say, this isn't we're not sticking with it. We're just trying to sort of punch on each other and that's not necessarily beneficial. So I think it's finding that balance between having those dialogues that help build ourselves and others and those dialogues that are just about speaking past each other. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, James. I think one thing that's been so interesting to me about um, this season as we've been grappling with these ideas about what, like, what do we owe one another and sort of what's fair, right? Um, Which are issues that I, like I get really emotional about, you know? And when I encounter something that I feel like is hypocritical or unfair, I have zero patience for it. And it's very hard for me to be able to separate myself from that that perspective and um, open myself up to feeling empathy for something different. So this entire season, I guess is what I'm saying, has been like an exercise in practicing sticking with the discomfort and then to come to the table with these interviews and these scripts and these ideas and to hear and to have you and other members of the team coming in with your own perspectives that are challenged. It's like every single moment along the way, we're like, all right, this is really uncomfortable. We're really grappling with how to present this idea because we have such different perspectives we've had to learn how to stick with that discomfort Mm -hmm. in order to get to a place where the episodes really can kind of crack a lot of people open, where where we're all going to accept the fact that that we're going to feel challenged. Mm -hmm. And I will say... It's tiring. Like sometimes this job you leave in your brain is like, wow, I can't think about anything else. Like I've been sticking with things all day. So I don't think, I think stick with it's an ethos that you can have with you all the time, but it's not necessarily something that you can constantly do in every single situation. Like you can't respond to every single Instagram comment that you disagree with. And maybe you shouldn't engage in every single argument that's brought up at the family dinner table, right? Or with, you know, your extended family, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, or even your friends, not every argument is worth getting into. So I think being selective about that and being being thoughtful about when you choose to engage and engaging when you do um, can help us be better, better people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it has become really clear to me over the course of this season of Top of Mind that as much as we are having these challenging moments producing it, that um, that, that experience is also what our listeners are, are, are having. And I think about how many times I have been listening to something and the minute I start to hear something that makes that I disagree with, like my uh, my gut is to turn it off. <laughs> like I really, oh, yeah. you know, I'm listening to the radio uh-huh. and somebody starts saying that, oh, nope, turn it off. I mean, it's just like if I'm listening and some song comes on on my, you know, YouTube shuffle that I don't like, I'm like, well, don't if like don't that. Like it, you Move don't right have to on, do right? It. It's yeah. like so easy to, especially now when everything is on demand, to just be like, not listening to that one. And I and I realize like how how much we're demanding of top of mind listeners that mm-hmm. this is not a podcast that is easy listening you know every minute of every episode um but it feels like the payoff you know personally when i choose to kind of engage in good faith with a good faith actor who is also expressing right. an opinion not in a way to attack or to flame or to demean but to sort of get you know to to share authentically their view it does feel like it takes like there is a real payoff, but it's, but it's not an easy thing. Right, for sure. And it is it is tiring like we've talked about, but but when you come out on that other side and you understand that, you know, everyone's going through the same thing, everybody has to stick with it at some point. Um, I think we talk a lot about how all of our episodes are sort of helping people practice this stick with it formula. And um, while it may be challenging and you have to sort of dig in and use your head and think deeply about the perspectives we're presenting you, um, when you come out on that other side, having that practice in maybe even this safe environment of our podcast where, you know, there are less variables, less factors like there are in real life than when you encounter those conversations in real life or those situations that challenge you. Um, you've you've done it before. You've done it with our podcast. And um you can do it again. Maybe you'll feel empowered and you, you know the steps to take and you know how it feels on the other side when you have that clarity for yourself and that understanding of people who think differently than you. Yeah. Well, James, thanks a lot. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for all the work this season. I've enjoyed working with you. Yeah, it's been great. And it's been great having you along with us for season three of Top of Mind, focused on finding fairness. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Season three was produced by James Hoops, Samuel Benson, Cole Cummings, Vanessa Goodman, Madeline McKenzie, Kimberly Beck, Elena Beck, Amber Mortensen, and me. We had sound design by Christian Makatel, Mitchell Towsley, Brandon Lewis, and Spencer Hewitt. You can binge the entire season of Top of Mind and all of our Stick With It conversation series right now on your favorite podcast app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. It's Julie. I am excited to announce season four of Top of Mind coming in August. The theme is assessing assumptions. Whether it's child welfare, healthcare, public safety, or schools, we tend to assume the best way to do things is the way it's always been done. Well, you know what they say about assuming things. It makes it you know what out of you and me. But assessing assumptions isn't about poking holes in everything to leave us feeling frustrated and confused. When we move beyond assumptions, we're better able to make decisions in the best interests of ourselves and others. Could the systems we've built to keep our communities safe and thriving work better if we weren't so set in our ways? Catch season four of Top of Mind, Assessing Assumptions, starting in August, anywhere you get podcasts. Podcasts.